From Goldman Sachs Research, this is Allison Nathan. Welcome to Top of Mind, a podcast that explores macroeconomic issues on the minds of our clients. In this episode, we're focusing on the policy implications of the fast-approaching U.S. presidential election, which is shaping up to be one of the most contentious and consequential in modern history. Given the candidates' radically different worldviews, the potential impact of the election on policy and, in turn, the economy is top of mind. To start, I tried to get a sense of the economic policy priorities of the candidates by speaking with policy experts from each party. Kevin Hassett, former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Trump, and Jared Bernstein, economic advisor to former Vice President Biden. Beginning with the incumbent, I asked Hassett what re-election would mean for President Trump's economic agenda. The president has talked a lot about his priorities for a second term, and I think on taxes, there are a number of things expiring that I'm sure he would want to make permanent. On tax rates, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act ended up being a little bit short of the rates the president pursued. Now, I haven't heard that he wants to take a second stab at that, but I would expect another tax proposal of some type that would include additional middle class tax cuts. And finally, one of the things we worked out of the White House the most while I was there that didn't end up becoming legislation was a big infrastructure plan. The president's passionate about infrastructure. There's probably about a year of meetings in the Roosevelt Room to come up with an infrastructure plan. And I think that in a second term, it'd be pretty likely that he would pursue it. Finally, we have to keep an eye on the economy and on whether there's a COVID vaccine and whether everything gets back to normal relatively quickly or not. And I would guess that if it doesn't, then something that's more of a short-term policy would likely be pursued if one isn't adopted between now and the end of the year. I then turned to the other side of the aisle and asked Bernstein to lay out what he thinks will be the economic priorities of a Biden administration. So I think the priorities actually do lend themselves to a sequencing, which is one, virus control, two, relief recovery, and three, what the vice president calls his building back better agenda. The vice president shares Chair Powell's view that a sustainable, robust recovery absent virus control is quite unlikely to occur. And this has been an epic failure of the current administration. So controlling the virus has to be step one, and Biden has an elaborate plan in that regard. It involves much more of a role for the federal government organizing governors and then within state actors to administer testing, tracing, quarantining, and at this point, preparing for distribution of the vaccine. None of those are happening at the federal level. And that's not only been a huge factor in the health crisis, it's been a real constraint on the economy. So that's part one. Part two is finishing construction on this bridge to the other side of the crisis. Under Biden administration, we would definitely look to provide relief, particularly to sectors that desperately need it. I really do think we're into a K-shaped recovery where the top is doing kind of well along with the stock market and large swaths of people and communities in the bottom half or two-thirds are struggling a lot more. So I want to be sure that every dollar in the next relief package has a significant bang for the buck and 
the highest possible multipliers. So that means expanding SNAP or nutritional support. It means, once again, enhancing UI benefits, and we can argue about the level, but that's a good fight to have. It means anti-eviction policy. The Congressional Heroes Act passed by House Democrats had $100 billion to prevent evictions and help against foreclosures. And state and local fiscal relief is just so important. I was working for the Obama administration in what we used to call the Great Recession, and one of the big lessons from the Recovery Act is that state and local support the very powerful stimulus with a really high multiplier. And then the third part is the Building Back Better agenda. The summary is that simply getting back to the kind of policy architecture that prevailed before the crisis is viewed as woefully insufficient by the vice president and his economic team. We've got to do better. Build Back Better is a campaign slogan, but it also means something. It means an economy that's much more resilient to the kinds of shocks that come fast and furiously these days, whether they're climate-induced wildfires or 100-year storms that come every year or pandemics or the ravages of racial inequality or a healthcare system, an unemployment system that isn't up to the tasks. All of these need fundamental repair, and that's what the Building Back Better agenda aspires to do. In order to pay for this agenda, Biden proposes tax increases. I asked Bernstein whether raising taxes would hurt an already weak economy. It's important to recognize the difference between countercyclical and more permanent policies. Countercyclical policies are traditionally deficit financed for very good reasons, and that makes particular sense in our current fiscal climate with interest rates locked in at such a low level for so long. But the permanent measures, the kinds of things in the Building Back Better agenda that Biden envisions as sticking around to achieve this structural improvement in our policy infrastructure require pay-fors. Otherwise, they are very difficult to sustain. And so he has a set of highly progressive pay-fors they don't kick in until above 400,000, which is well within the top 1%. And some of them, like treating realized capital gains as regular income, doesn't kick in until over 1 million in AGI. So these are highly, highly progressive, and they're critically important from the pay-for perspective that I mentioned before in terms of sustaining the policy. Now, you raised a question that I've heard before, which is, why would you want to raise taxes on one hand while you were doing your Keynesian countercyclical thing on the other hand, and I take that point, and I think a lot of this sort of thing is going to have to be evaluated in real time, there are two things that I would say push the other way. One is that, as I mentioned, these are so highly targeted at the top that you have to be careful not to overestimate whatever elasticities you're worrying about up there. When we often talk about the negative elasticities associated with tax increases, they don't always apply the same way at those levels. Another point that I want to stress is that I very much object to discussions of tax policy that look at just one side of the ledger. I mean this in two ways in the case of Biden's agenda. First of all, the impact of the spending programs, particularly the domestic investment programs, is strongly pro-growth, particularly in the areas of climate change, green jobs, procurement policies, helping people get back to work by standing up a child care industry that pretty much doesn't exist in this country. So you really have to look at both sides of the ledger to judge 
these kinds of growth impacts. And secondly, there are many tax cuts in the Biden plan that somehow never get picked up in this discussion. There's a $15,000 tax credit for first-time home buyers. There's an increase in the premium tax credit for people who buy health insurance. There's an $8,000 per family refundable child independent care credit. There's important tax credits for small businesses, particularly targeted at people of color. I then turned to one of the most important economic issues of our time, trade and ask both Hassett and Bernstein about the approach each candidate is likely to take on the issue. Here's Hassett on the Trump administration's approach to trade policy. Given where we are today, if he's reelected, do you think that he'll continue with tariffs? He's stated that his objective is no tariffs and no non-tariff barriers. But with asymmetric trade deals that he inherited, people didn't really want to come to the table because they had such an advantage in the existing deal. So I think the president's approach has been very effective by saber-rattling with tariffs. He got the Europeans to up their contributions to NATO. We got the new NAFTA pass with a lot of concessions America's been seeking for a long time from Canada and Mexico. Similarly, President Trump was able to extract some great concessions from the Koreans. So I think that tariffs have been a very effective negotiating mechanism for him, and I think that he probably will continue to use it as such if you don't negotiate with him and fix some of the things that you're doing that are harming Americans and American firms, then we will put tariffs on you. And here's Bernstein on how Biden's trade policy would differ from Trump's. Well, I think the difference would be in three distinct areas. Working in coalition with our traditional partners against bad actors, making sure exchange rates and capital flows are not distorting trade outcomes, and most importantly, deep domestic investment in tradable goods sectors. This has to do with Biden's onshoring agenda, taking supply chains that have been proven to be unreliable and bringing them onshore, and supporting manufacturing employment through a tax credit for onshoring and a tax penalty for offshoring. Biden believes Trump's trade war has been a huge negative for our economy, for our farmers, for our manufacturers even for our exporters. I mean, all you need to know is that after the aluminum tariffs went into place, Alcoa asked for an exemption. Alcoa is an American aluminum producer. They want an exemption. And the reason is because Trump is trying to unscramble a globalization omelet that can't be unscrambled, especially the way he's going at it. So the idea is not lost on the Biden economic team that Trump's trade policies have been disruptive, unsuccessful, and counterproductive. And what that means to us is that we need a much better, more pro-worker trade policy. And my personal view is that the trade deal process became pretty corrupted and was just handshakes between investors on both sides of the border at the expense of workers, of labor unions, of consumers. And at least in my personal view, before we go back into the business of trade deals, We need to have a major rethink of who needs to be at the table when those deals are cut. And then there's the issue where there is maybe the starkest contrast between the candidates, regulation. Here's Hassett on what regulatory policy would look like in a second Trump administration. Another major aspect of his agenda in this first term has been deregulation across many, many sectors. Do you think that could go further in a second term? Yeah. And to put it in perspective, in President Obama's eight years, there are just a little bit short of 500 new economically significant regulations. 
and looking at what's in the hopper and what's already passed. My guess is that we're going to finish the year with, you're not going to believe it, 16. So there's been a lot rolled back, but I think that for people thinking about the second term, the most economically important thing that President Trump would do would be to maintain that commitment to basically very much limit new regulations. And it has a really massive positive effect for medium and small businesses who don't have giant career staffs that only do regulation. If you look at the small business organization surveys, then you see the historically high euphoria beginning once the regulations stopped rolling out. And then you saw big expansion and investment and so on. So I think that there's going to be a million things that are rolled back if that pace continues, then that's going to be a really strong climate for entrepreneurs and small businesses. And here's Bernstein on what he thinks will be the main areas of focus for regulatory rollbacks under a Biden administration. I can think of four. Obviously, climate's at the top of the list. I wouldn't be surprised if we started seeing rollbacks there on the morning of day one. But also in healthcare, this is perhaps somewhat underappreciated. There's been major sabotage of the ACA. And one of the things that's happened is that the share of Americans who are uninsured after falling sharply by five or six percentage points once the ACA was enacted has been going up ever since Trump has been in office. So we have to completely reverse the ACA sabotage. The rollbacks of the ACA tax should also happen, if not day one, week one. Then we'd be rolling back anti-immigration regulations. And then finally, labor. Biden's labor agenda is very strong, and he's long believed that unions were critical to improving worker bargaining power. And the core of Biden's model of economic fairness is the idea that diminished worker bargaining power is a key factor behind the increase in inequality. To wrap things up with both camps, I asked Hassett and Bernstein to assess the future of economic growth under the candidates. Here's Hassett. First of all, the second quarter was bad a quarter as we've ever seen. And the third quarter is going to be as good a quarter as we've ever seen. So I think that there's a lot of momentum. And then the question is, will the momentum continue? I think that if President Trump's elected, then the things that generated the momentum in the first place will still be there and could be expected, I think, to contribute to a pretty rapid recovery. Don't forget how much momentum that we entered COVID with. The real median household income in 2019 grew $4,379. That's $1,300 more than it did in the whole eight years under President Obama. There are a lot of reasons that that happened. That wasn't just Trump's policies, but the point is that that's a lot of momentum coming into the year. And I think that you could get back to having an economy that's delivering income growth like that relatively quickly if we could control the disease. If Vice President Biden is elected and gives us the tax hike that he's proposed, which is the biggest tax hike in history by multiple bigger than two, then I'd be very, very pessimistic about the economy and would guess that we'd have a double-dip recession. But whether he does it or not is, in my mind, an open question. And here's Bernstein's take. Unsurprisingly, I think growth would be higher under a Biden administration. And I'd like to separate that out between near-term and longer-term. In the near-term, I do think that Biden's history with the Recovery Act of understanding the importance of getting the biggest bang for the buck you can, implementing these things and working with both sides to get a plan out there means that you'll get more stimulus under 
a Biden administration than you would under Trump. But then over the longer term, which is more interesting, I think some of the structural changes we make are pro-growth. The Biden plan proposes a $775 billion program to stand up the largely missing sector in our economy, and that's child care, by setting up a affordable and accessible and quality child care system, I think we can probably kick up labor supply, which would be pro-growth. I think our clean energy investment agenda is also pro-growth. And then universal pre-K and free public college for families with free tuition to public universities for families with incomes below 125000 Those are all pro-supply side measures that I think will be pro-growth relative to a second Trump term. I then turn to Ian Bremmer, president and founder of Eurasia Group, for a broader perspective on Trump and Biden's policy agendas. He argues that the differences between the two candidates are far sharper on domestic issues, where he views a Biden win alongside a Democratic sweep as heralding potentially the largest shift in U.S. domestic policy in decades. But on foreign policy, he sees the two candidates differing more in approach than in substance. When we think about policy for President Trump versus Biden, will it be less aligned on domestic policy or foreign policy? It'll be much more different on domestic policy. There will be a strong desire towards redistributive policies if Biden wins. And that means much heavier taxation on the top 1%, a possibility even of a wealth tax if you get a Democratic majority in Senate, they get rid of the filibuster. Regulatory policy would be much more intrusive, and certainly corporate taxation would go up on sustainability in the environment. I think this would be much more progressive than even Obama-Biden had been four years ago. So pretty much every aspect of domestic policy, this would be a more significant shift, really seismic, than anything we've seen in decades in the United States, where on foreign policy, I think it's much more nuanced. It would be much more about execution. I mean, Trump is much more unilateralist in orientation, but the reality is American exceptionalism did not start with Trump. Pretty much every American president has a lot of that. And I think that U.S. policy towards China is pretty aligned, whether it's Biden or Trump in a more hawkish manner on a host of issues from Hong Kong and Taiwan to the South China Sea to the Uyghurs to, most importantly, technology and trade. I think on Russia, Trump likes Putin a lot more, but the orientation of the Trump administration towards Russia has been sanctions and quite hawkish. That would also be true for Biden. Trump got this Israel, UAE and Bahrain normalization in place. More are coming in the coming days. Biden would fully support that, as well as the move of the embassy to Jerusalem. Biden would try to get us back to the old Iranian nuclear deal, but Iran would still be fundamentally a pretty implacable U.S. adversary in the region. That's been true under Trump, too. On foreign policy, the single thing that would be most important would be on Europe, where Trump has been a Eurosceptic. He supported Brexit. He's been pretty aligned with anti-establishment forces like Viktor Orban in Hungary, Biden would be very strongly in favor of Merkel and Macron and a stronger transatlantic multilateralist relationship. And if you combine that with a more social democratic domestic set of regulatory policies, 
Europe as a regulatory superpower, you'd see more alignment between Washington and Brussels writ large under Biden, and I think that's meaningful. Notably, Bremer doesn't agree with the broad perception that a Biden win would lead to a meaningful relaxation in U.S.-China tensions, even on trade. Do you think that Biden would roll back the tariffs that Trump put in place? I think that there would probably be an effort by both the Americans and the Chinese to have a bit of a honeymoon. If Biden won in that regard, create some space, because this has been a really bad year for Xi Jinping, frankly. His fight isn't just with the U.S., but it's with Australia, it's been with India, it's been with Japan, it's been with the U.K., Canada, you name it. I don't think tariffs just come off. I think something has to be provided in return by the Chinese. I think it would be at the margins, but you could have a little momentum. But on the big issues, like would we see a phase two trade deal as plausible between Biden and Xi? I have a hard time seeing it. Would we see a rollback on the national security law in Hong Kong? Absolutely not. And that actually drives the Americans and the Chinese farther apart, particularly under Biden. Would we see the Americans back off from pushing Huawei, China's national champion in technology, up against the wall and trying to cut them off from semiconductors in their supply chain and building a U.S. and Western-led alternative to 5G? No, I think that Biden would lean into that pretty strongly. And I've spoken with pretty much his entire team about those issues. So I don't necessarily think that the overall trajectory of the U.S.-China relationship would change with Biden. I think what is important is right now the only serious ongoing high-level conversation between the Trump administration and China is between U.S. Trade Representative Lighthizer and Liu He his counterpart in China. And there isn't anything else, right? So that's a problem because it means that if you were to have a sudden accident in the South China Sea or in the Taiwan Straits, that could escalate pretty significantly without a mechanism to contain it. Where if Biden wins, you're going to see an enormous amount of diplomatic engagement across the top of the bureaucracies in the U.S. and in China that isn't going to suddenly make us like each other more, but would create some guardrails around the more contentious parts of our bilateral relationship that would make accidents less likely. And I think that's an important thing to offer. On the Middle East, while Bremer expects Biden to pursue a revised nuclear deal with Iran, he doesn't think much progress can be made until after the June 2021 Iranian election. I can't see the Supreme Leader allowing significant progress on the Iranian nuclear deal before the election because I don't think they're going to want to give a win like that to the moderates who put together a deal that right now is seen as unsuccessful for the Iranian government, for Iranian economics, for Iranian national security. I think we need to understand that the Obama deal, the JCPOA, the nuclear deal, which I favored, just to be frank, but I thought it was significantly oversold. It did not lead to an opening of diplomatic relations between Iran and the U.S., and it never was likely to. It did not end U.S. sanctions against Iran. It didn't facilitate the big oil companies from the U.S. or Europe to go in and start investing. It did not stop the Iranians from ballistic missile testing in contravention 
to a number of UN Security Council resolutions condemning them from doing so. It did not prevent the Iranians from continuing to support proxy wars against the United States and its allies in the Gulf and more broadly didn't stop the Iranians from providing support, advisory support, economic support, direct military support to organizations that the U.S. considers to be terrorist organizations. None of that changes. If a new deal comes into place with Iran, the Israel relationship with the U.S. and the Gulf state relationship with the U.S. are among the strongest relationships that Trump has forged over his four years and will continue to be the strongest relationships the U.S. has in the region under a Biden administration. Given this, is it harder to reach a deal now with Iran? You know, no, it isn't. And in fact, go farther than that. It's not even harder to do a deal with the Palestinians. The fact that the Israelis and the Saudis and the Emiratis and Bahrain are all working together, and they're working together because they consider Iran to be their primary adversary in the region, I think that's compelling in terms of the Iranians moving more towards action. So if anything, it probably makes it a little easier. And on Russia... Bremer offers more detail on why the U.S. stance has been more hawkish than widely perceived and is likely to remain so regardless of who wins the election. I think that Russia's gotten an enormous amount of tension in the U.S. media because Trump personally has such an admiration for the Russian leader. But it really hasn't created a reset or an opening between the two countries. The fact is that Under Trump, the Ukrainians got anti-tank Javelin missiles. They didn't get them under Obama. Under Trump, sanctions against the Russians because of the intervention in Ukraine actually expanded. Defense spending of NATO allies actually expanded. U.S. troop movements in the region and placement in Poland actually expanded. None of those things are in Russia's interest. So while there would be a more united front if Biden were president, the actual policy orientation would not be very different. The one area of foreign policy where Bremer does see substantial differences between the candidates is on Europe, where he believes that despite some ongoing trade tensions, U.S.-European cooperation on global issues like climate change and vaccine distribution would increase markedly under Biden. There's still going to be tensions between the U.S. and Europe on trade because there's some zero-sumness in supporting policies toward your own national companies, especially coming out of a very difficult pandemic period. But right now, the U.S.-European relationship has probably been driven more by trade conflict between Trump and the European leaders, simply because there's not much of an area of joint cooperation that Trump has been pursuing, where if Biden comes in, there would be a very significant wave of diplomatic relief and engagement among European leaders. The U.S. won't leave the Paris Climate Treaty. They will get back into the World Health Organization. They'd work with the Europeans probably on the COVAX and the vaccine distribution. There would be an effort to really create an alignment between the world's top democracies that's centered on the U.S. and Europe. And just in a whole bunch of little areas that you'll see the Americans and the Europeans more proactively engaging with each other. I mean, Trump's first trip outside the U.S. was to Saudi Arabia and Israel. Biden's would almost certainly either be to Europe or would be to Canada, followed very quickly by Europe. Finally, given Bremer's broad geopolitical expertise, I ended by asking him what he thinks will be the most pressing foreign policy issue over the next four years. So 
it's clearly the U.S.-China relationship, and it's clearly the future orientation of global technology and data, because it's not only how the global economy works, but it's also the orientation of society and humanity towards democracy or not, and very, very closely linked in priorities would be climate. But keep in mind, if you can't get the Americans and the Chinese to work together, you can't really accomplish very much. As the election fast approaches, how the winning candidate will shape all of these issues, both at home and abroad, will remain top of mind. I'll leave it there for now. We wish you good health during this difficult time. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. I'm Allison Nathan. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind at Goldman Sachs, and I'll see you next time. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.